Hey guys, thanks for tuning in. Uh, who has time for training videos and tutorials? No one. Well, okay, you, maybe you do. But Right Networks is the easy way to get started and easy to use. They offer 24-7, 365 US-based support. I love these guys. The Right Networks, not the wrong networks, the right ones. So getting your business in the cloud is easy no matter how much or how little experience that you have with technology, even for a guy like me. I understand tech, but you know, I don't like doing it. And so that's why I like people like this. So to learn more, give Right Networks a call at 888-417-4448. That's 888-417-4448, extension 1, or just call me. I'll put you directly in touch with someone over there. Hey, everybody, we got a lot to unpack today. Today, we're talking to a student of archaeology who studied the Neolithic era. Now, don't turn me off. Listen, she gave up her dream to become a war journalist who covered the Civil War in former Yugoslavia at a time when war journalists were facing persecution. You know what I'm talking about. It was dangerous. While she was there, she witnessed only three-quarters of Sarajevo being destroyed or damaged by shells and bombs. You know, the... I, for a lot of people, you don't know this, but you need to know this. The war lasted three years and resulted in nearly 100,000 deaths. I mean, this was really, really bad. After the war, she moved to New York and she started a real estate business during the height of the recession, right in the middle of another war, an economic war. And she's thrived this, and built this business, built it up over you know, like 300 employees. Needless to say, we got a lot to talk about, so we're going to cover it. I want to welcome Alexandra Stavanovich. From Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. You know, I guess I got to ask you the very first question is, how did you get from covering wars to real estate, which I, I think we're going to get into, but I got to ask this question around North Korea. When you when you see all the stuff going on with North Korea, uh, does, does, that, does that, that get old feelings kind of going? Um, it's very interesting because uh, with my pen, um, I have already fought a war and helped expose uh, a very unhealthy political environment back in Serbia, um, then former Yugoslavia. Mm -hmm. And I feel that it's up to my young colleagues here and now to find ways to be heard and make positive voices out there be heard. You know, but uh, Alexander, it's, it's one thing to write from afar. It's another thing to be right in the middle of it, right? Exactly. Yeah. And and so does, can you, can you give me any kind of, just like insight of what that's like day in and day out of of covering a war from being right there where the shooting's going on, the bombing's going on, the terror's going on, the grief is going on. And I, I got to imagine, uh, you know, I'm not done that, but I got to imagine a lot of pain too. It's an emotionally draining experience, especially um, if you come from that specific space and that place. So you're trying to um, show to the world what's actually going on. So not only are you running around the front lines and, you know, staying in shape physically, but emotionally, it takes such a dramatic toll on you that most of my colleagues there and myself, we used to have to leave the theater for a while um, every now and then to try to preserve some sanity. If something you really love and, 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 and care about is falling apart all over around you, it's very difficult to keep that distance that you necessarily need in order to be able to report. 
So then why go back? I mean, you, you had a chance to leave. Why go back? Um, that's a, a very good question. You know, I originally, I come from Serbia and I was covering the war on the Bosnian side. So I lived and I spent most of my time in Sarajevo and, um, Serb troops were actually the ones, um, inflicting and, and being involved in, in a lot of, um, really weird atrocities that were happening during that war. So being from the wrong side or the opposite side in the conflict, I felt that it was my duty uh, to be there and to keep on saying what's going on, even though my uh, colleagues back in Belgrade and my friends back in Belgrade had no idea what really was going on there as they were being served this diet of propaganda that was being put in place by the Milosevic regime. It's very hard, you know, now when you see when that propaganda veil uh, kind of lifts for you and you see what's actually really going on and you're now behind that veil to not, you know, to, to at any point want to, again, allow yourself to be uh, fooled into thinking that, say, Serbia is right, or in this case, it would be that the political, current political regime is right, or that Korea, uh, North Korea is right, and so on and so forth. Once that, that pink cloud that propaganda creates is gone, it's very difficult uh, to go back to that uh, pink cloudy side. Yeah, when you said to be on the wrong side, in in this case, you're talking about Serbia and the atrocities they were doing and, and why they were saying they were doing them or not doing them, whether they said they did them or not. That's what I, I assume that's what you mean by saying on the wrong side. Yes, when I yeah. when I say being of the, even my accent, working in Sarajevo, I'm a born Belgrader. So as someone with a very thick Belgrade, i.e. Serbian accent, to work in a predominantly, you know, Muslim and uh, Catholic town it's a it's a you know it's at your disadvantage yeah. um, so you have to find it in you and in people around you um, that you know you're there for a reason and you're trying to help spread the word about their plight and and so when you're doing that but yet you're from the other side i mean is it almost uh, do you just get very cynical about things um, I don't think you get cynical. I think you get very realistic. And also what what I have experienced personally in war, um, there's this weird notion that I retain to date where, where when you know that at any point in time, you could just simply be gone forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a layer of you that peels away. There's a layer of everyone around you that peels away. And uh, you kind of become this... Uh, person that 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 is very true to who they are. There is very little in terms of that culturally ingrained, um, you know, small talk. There's very little of things that we are taught, uh, you know, culturally as we grow. Uh, we are just reduced to who we are as a person. If we're good, we're permanently good. If we're bad, we're permanently bad. And that's something that I think the war, um, especially in Sarajevo, brought out to everyone. Yeah, it takes, a, I guess the way I would say it, it really takes the bullshit factor out pretty quick. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, you, you went, and the other thing I think that one would say around war is the fear. You know, and you once stated in regard to covering the war, I had no fear, and I don't know if I would have had the strength in me if I knew fear from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you still believe that? Absolutely. Um, I believe that without fear, um, so many things out there are possible. For me, 
it was possible to cover a war. Um, without fear paralyzing your thoughts and senses, you kind of feel that there, is, there are no boundaries to, to what you can do. There, there are no boundaries to possibilities. It's mm-hmm. easy, for example, to remain motivated or to stand your ground against a fierce competitor or whatever else it may be. Um, so I, I think that that translates really well into the real estate business that I'm in. <laughs> or business in general, too. I mean, I mean, it's a different level, right? I mean, you know, I, I've never had to be I've never had to be in the on the front or in the war. You know, I'd like to think how I would react or what I would do. I mean, that's just I, I come from a military family, a military background. About every relative that I know has been involved in the military and at some level, you know, all the way back to my great, 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 great grandfather from coming from Scotland, you know, um, and um, or and actually Northern Ireland um, and um, and serving in the Continental Armies and the French and Indian Wars and all the way through. But, you know, I would like to think that I would. But there's a different level of fear in war versus, I think, a fear in business, although it's still fear. Right. Well, I, I think what's also really interesting is you never really know who you are until yeah. you put into that position. And I've yep. seen yep. many times, uh, sometimes there are people that you would expect would um, be able to emotionally blossom in a specific environment, and instead they clamp, clamp up and they're just not capable of even most basic functioning. I found between you and me, female, um, you know, people who were in the war who were female um, to be able to withstand the emotional trauma a lot better than males, which I found very intriguing, especially because I was young. I was in my 20s, uh, my mid-20s at that time. Um, And I I thought that, you know, girls, all of us are kind of known as uh, these beings that easily freak out. And before people used to think that we faint at the the sight of tears or or blood or, or distress. Um, and I, I learned that that was almost completely on the opposite side of the spectrum in real life. Hmm. I, I want to come back to that because I think that's kind of interesting. I was at an event yesterday where I actually said that between men and women, she said, uh, basically, boys are stupid. So <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. Well, we'll get to that in just a second. I want to come back. I want to take a break. Um, and I, I know it's serious, but I also got to take a break on some, some serious business because I want to talk about my friends at Right Networks, which help you securely transition your accounting-based desktop applications into the cloud, regardless of which version you're using. It doesn't make a difference anymore because it's in the cloud. So as a partner you can trust, they take away the burden of IT. So the more you spend a lot more time and focus on your business, which is important because that's what makes, um, you know, keeping close track of your finances, your operations so much easier because they do the work and that you can work from anywhere, anytime the support team is there for us around the clock, providing you and me with simple, secure way to work. I love this. So using their secure and reliable Right Networks cloud, that's in the cloud, again, in the cloud. So you don't have to load anything. It's right there. It's all there. And they keep you, um, you know, moving your accounting and your business applications that you use every day, like QuickBooks or Microsoft. It's all on the cloud. So you don't have to worry about things like servers and backups and adding storage. So here, here's the number. Okay. So to learn more about Right Networks, since, you know, I love the name Right Networks as opposed to wrong networks, the way you've been doing it now, and get over to Right Networks. You call them at 888-417-4448, extension one. That's 888-417-4448, extension one. Or just, you know, write to me, you know, write to me or call me. You know how they reach me on Twitter and Facebook and everywhere else. 
So, Alexander, I want I, I want to get back to this fear thing because, you know, uh, I, it's interesting you talk about the pain. It's interesting. I think this is true in business too. I think women can put up with a lot more shit than men can by far. You know, um, and and even like pain. My wife's always saying when I complain I'm sick. I'm like a big baby. So, you're you're kind of saying the same thing. I'm afraid I am. I have to side with your wife in this debate. Um, yeah, we, I guess, you know, it's that old question about nature. Um, I think we are engineered, we're designed to be able to withstand pain better than you are. Um, and I think everything comes from that. So biologically, it makes perfect sense that if our bodies are supposed to give birth, that clearly, you know, our expectation for that threshold of pain is just simply greater in life. And uh, I think that that just permeates. I don't think that it has anything to do with what you mentioned before, that uh, men are just stupid. I don't believe in that. Um, Because that's just such a gross overstatement, um, at least from where I'm sitting. But, but, you know, you do tend to have that aspect of being infantile when it comes to, you know, wanting your mommy to take care of you. (laughs) I, I agree with that. So you do you still retain that sense of fearlessness and and what have you learned from facing fear? Absolutely. I think that today I'm probably even more fearless than before. Um there was only one time in my life that uh that I want to say happened about some 6 years ago when I had my daughter where um for the first time in my life I discovered there that that fear is actually possible and that I'm not entirely immune to it, um, but it's a fear for a different being. It's not a fear for mm. myself or who I am or where I'm headed or for my business or anything like that. I, I, I guess also it's another layer of biological fear that happens when you have a child. But um, when it comes to retaining that sense of um, not being scared, um, you know, Facing fear, I find very helpful with motivation. I find that fear uh, very useful when it comes to being able to clearly define your goals. You know, what am I afraid of not being able to achieve, right? If you start thinking about it that way, then you're going to come up with some really grand plans and, and grand dreams that you, you'd like to be able to, um, you know, achieve down the road. I think the fear, quite frankly, only lasts for a couple of seconds, quite frankly. It doesn't last long. You you have to overcome it. I I actually have this in my last book, Think Big, Act Bigger. That's one of the big reasons I see companies fail is because they they get racked with fear. And I think great leaders overcome it very quickly. So... You, you moved to New York, I th- or maybe you visited. I can't remember. When you, when did you move to New York? Was it 99 or was it shortly after that? It was 99. Um, yeah. I came to New York when uh, NATO uh, finally decided to bomb Serbia into submission and uh, made them leave, um, you know, um, at that time, Kosovo. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I came for a visit. Um, and frankly, I really was trying to figure out if there's a way for me to regain a bit of that emotional energy that uh, was so heavily depleted by this, you know, wartime former Yugoslavia. So um, when I came to New York, my that was my secondary choice. I really wanted to go to Amsterdam. Um, I thought that I would settle there. Um, but when I came to New York for that visit, I was ill-prepared for the variety of choice. <laughs> 
phenomenal diversity, yeah. overflow of, of overflow of energy, and the almost palpable economic potential and human potential and everything else that in my life was missing for a very long time, you know, being in Sarajevo. And so um, that overwhelming sense of a busy, dynamic uh, peace that permeated every nook and cranny in New York City, um, you know, for me, it was this bubbling, pulsating, powerful place. Um, and, you know, there was the, it, it, it was almost this kind of crossroads of, of, of a spirit deep embedded in the city, the vitality that I needed. That's tough. That's tough, though. When, I mean, it's like a smorgasbord, right? It's like, oh, man, it's a huge buffet of food. Mm-hmm. and But you got to settle on something. You can't just eat everything. So how what what attracted you to New York then and what attracted you to stay in the U.S.? I mean, Amsterdam's a pretty cool city. Amsterdam is a pretty cool city, but I was so smitten by New York because mm-hmm. it was a love at first sight situation for me that I didn't even pursue Amsterdam after that. It just was that, was that, and that was your first visit was to then? Yes. You've never been before? Yeah, it was my, my first visit to the United States, let oh, um, alone New York City. And, and it was just, you know, overwhelming. I went through this massive cultural shock. And on the other side of it, and, you know, possibly maybe even dealing with some post-traumatic stress disorder or, or the mm-hmm. leftovers of that, um, it was just a perfect environment for me to just blend in and just let it take me wherever um, you know, it did. And so, um, yeah, that, that's how I came to New York City. Did it help? Did you, did you, you must have it. had to be a fairly decent Serbian population, though, of like friends and some other people. Yeah, you know, that's interesting because I, I'm one of those, you know, if you wish, immigrants who um, likes the idea of a melting pot. I just recently, I've been here since 99, so what is this, my 18th year in the city? Mm-hmm. I had just recently met someone from Serbia, from Belgrade. Um, not because they, they Serbs don't live here and former Yugoslavs don't live here. It just I was never drawn to that idea. For me, it was I like that idea of a clear cut. You know, this is well. That can't be the first time you've ran into somebody, right? I mean, it, I mean, there's a lot of Serbs. There's the Serbs, Albanians. I mean, there's everybody. Yes, of course. And 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 you know, my friends come from all walks of life and from everywhere in this world. Um, but just, it, I guess it happened so that, that my first, you know, relationship with someone from Serbia, a friendly relationship, um, just happened, I want to say, about two years ago. It's a, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a friend of mine who's an attorney, and she's married to a, to an architect who's also from, uh, I believe he's from PA. He's a well, you just said friendly. Um, so was, were there unfriendly? I have to ask you that since you, you threw that out there. No, there, there weren't any. Oh, okay, that's good. Yeah, it just happens. So, you know, especially in Brooklyn and, and, you know, Manhattan as well. But whenever you meet someone, it's, it's uh, as you said, a smorgasbord of, of, you know, the places where people come from. I've met people from Belgium. I've met people from, from Korea. I've met people from Denmark. I've met people from, um, you know, Mozambique, whatever. <laughs> but I just didn't meet that many Serbs. Yeah. Well, let me, let me take another quick break and then I'll come back and, and I want to talk about starting a business and I'm going to get into why you got started in real estate. But if you're starting your own business and you're not going to go into real estate, think about uh, taxes. Uh, investing in a Liberty Tax Service um, franchise it, you know, makes perfect sense. The experience of a, a really great team, access to a network of over 4,000 offices around the country. Top-notch marketing materials, I happen to know. Martha Gorman, she's the CMO there. She does a great job in making sure that you get 
good information, good materials, good marketing materials, and it really makes owning your business um, in your reach. So find out more by reaching out to LibertyTaxFranchise.com. You know, and by the way, they, they have a full franchise, so you can buy a whole big office, and then you can get into it for a s- season, you know. Think about you only want to do it part-time or um, just during the season, not year-round. Year, year you can talk to them about that. So, And, uh, again, LibertyTaxFranchise.com or, or reach out to me, and I'll be glad to put you in touch with John, who's the CEO. He's the main guy, and um, he's the granddaddy at taxes, man. He's been every John Hewitt's who I'm talking about. Anyway, let me, let me get back to our guest and talk about real estate. So how did you, how did you go from being a reporter covering the war and then you get into real estate. I mean, it doesn't look like that's the playbook that I would have said for you. I, I would have thought you would have gotten into journalism. I would have thought you've gotten into maybe writing, you know, write a book or or maybe hit the hit the streets uh, giving speeches. So how did you get involved with real estate? For me, real estate now that I'm in it and that I know what it's about, obviously, um, seems to, to have been a perfect fit for me because... I am a little bit of an adrenaline junkie, clearly, from, you know, given my background. And there's nothing undynamic about real estate in New York City. So, <laughs> it's, 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 it's not for the faint at heart. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think I'm not saying that you necessarily need to have a wartime background <laughs> to be a real estate broker in New York City, but it can surely help. So let's put it that way. But I mean, you didn't have that background, uh, you know, in Serbia, right? No, I mean, you, you weren't doing real estate before. Absolutely not. Yeah, I I came into real estate, real estate really via the sideway alley of interior design. So mm-hmm. how, how does that fit in? Um, I studied interior design in Chelsea in New York City. Mm-hmm. And I discovered that not only do I like really creating space and, you know, creating beautiful spaces, but I also, as I went through that pro- program, I realized that I like connecting spaces with people because those spaces without people really meant very little to me personally. So I guess this was a a throwback to my post-war days in Sarajevo because the spaces there were so mutilated, so ravaged by war um, that it looked like hope deserted the space and, and the whole place. So it made sense for me to kind of have that idea of wanting to recreate and I guess that's what just exploded out of me. And as that happened, real estate creeped into that, that equation. Uh, would you just say you're obsessed with that? Were you obsessed with it in terms of getting started? Or did you, and, and how did you get into it? Did you just go take a class to begin with? Uh, you mean real estate? Yeah. Yes, I took a class. I took yeah. a class to become a, a real estate salesperson in New York City. And uh, I took a class, but Prior to taking that class, I worked on designing um, the interior of a few really large buildings in Brooklyn, and that exposed me to buildings not only as you know objects that you can beautify on the inside, but also spaces that people would want to inhabit. Yeah, but at the same time, I, as I recall, timing-wise, you started your real estate business at the same time the U.S. went into a recession. That seems like seems like a whole another another tragedy i mean you 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 know your first job was you know recovering the war and now 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 we're going into recessions almost a a double whammy you know it's really interesting you're completely right in uh, in 2007 when we started ideal properties group banks were already starting to fail the final stage was set for the lehman brothers collapse um but yet i feel that 
we felt that times could not have been better to start a real estate uh, brokerage business in Brooklyn. Why we felt that was because we knew that in New York City and in Brooklyn, you know, everybody shares that that very limited amount of space that exists here. Yeah. The city's geography itself is constantly reminding us of the fact that its land has limitations. So real estate in New York City is difficult to attain. It tends to define its inhabitants, all of us as its inhabitants. And so, for example, you mention a neighborhood where you live to someone that you have just met, and the name itself of that neighborhood will invoke numerous associations. Yeah. Well, especially in New York, and more more so in New York than I think anywhere else. Yeah. You know, because I'm always fighting with my daughter. She says Tribeca, I say Soho. She says this, I say that. You know, Midtown, we were constantly arguing about what's Midtown. Of course, Midtown's getting divided into all kinds of subsections between Murray Hill and and what, uh, uh, what do they call that? Uh, North of Madison. Nomad, yeah, Nomad, Chelsea, all these areas now, right? All the acronyms, you mean. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, FIDI. Took me a long time to figure out what the hell they're talking about, FIDI. What's FIDI? That's a financial district. So folks that are listening, you don't know New York. I'm telling you, we're talking about neighborhoods. I'm I'm talking about small blocks of neighborhoods that people are starting to find now because they're they're little microcosms of the bigger city. And you think, oh, it's it's all New York. No, it's not. And there's a difference between, as as, as, uh, Alexander's been pointing out, she says Brooklyn a couple times, "It's, eh, it's New York. But it's not Manhattan. So it's like eh, people, even though it's one of the boroughs, I mean, people, they know the difference and they they speak it. Yeah, Brooklyn, we, we feel that Brooklyn is Manhattan with attitude. It's a big <laughs> yeah. That's, that's but, true. It's not Queens, that's for sure. Definitely not Queens. <laughs> but um, what I was trying to kind of say before is that people here will base their first impressions of you not only on your appearance, or the tone of your voice or whatever, but on the neighborhood or the style of housing that you live in. Mm-hmm. Okay. So with the city's real estate market being such a premier destination for not just Americans and New Yorkers and whatnot, but also for, you know, all these foreigners armed with UNs and euros and rubles and dinars and whatnot. Um, you know, every New Yorker's curiosity is always peaked. There's, there's no doubt about it. And we're all obsessed with real estate here. So Brooklyn on the other hand, you know, has this um, globally recognizable identity at this point. Um, this, the, the, the borough speaks the language that seems to appeal to the rest of the world. Um, you know, just like Manhattan, we have great food, entertainment, cultural establishments, and so, and so on. But to build a lifestyle that Manhattan is, I mean, that Brooklyn is, you need all these rows and, and rows of pretty uh, historic housing um, but at the same time, you need creative industries. You need a pioneering spirit. You need people willing to convert the dilapidated warehouse spaces to trendy beer gardens or ice cream parlors. You need a willingness, if you wish, on part of you know both newcomers and Brooklynites to breathe life into areas previously covered in peeling paint. So that's what's been going on in Brooklyn for a very long time. And that's what makes it such a dynamic and interesting. You know, but Brooklyn's pretty hot right now. I mean, everywhere I turn, everybody's talking about Brooklyn. Um, why did you Why did you focus your business model primarily in the Brooklyn market and, as opposed to the rest of Manhattan? I think primarily because of what I just said, because of how um, I saw Brooklyn at that time as compared to Manhattan. 
when I first moved to New York City, I lived on the Upper East Side, or what at that time was actually called Spanish Harlem. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now it's definitely, you know, prime uh, Upper East Side. So I, I realized really early on how plastic and, and elastic all these developments in not only neighborhoods, uh, but also people moving in are. And Brooklyn felt like just this really fertile ground. It felt like ground zero for development. And it felt like, you know, a really good spot to be compared to Manhattan. Manhattan, to me, felt very tired. Hmm, that's interesting. It's got, uh, Brooklyn's got the grit. I think that's, that's, it's got that feeling. It's got that grit. When, well, but let's go back to 2007. I mean, everything was falling apart around you. I mean, weren't you discouraged? I don't think that, you know, I'm personally not a person that easily gets discouraged, maybe because of, again, my professional and personal background. Um, I always felt that if something was easy to achieve, it probably wasn't worth the effort. Mm -hmm. Um, So, in my mind, it's sort of like a supply and demand scenario, even with achievements, where the easier an apple is to pick, the more likely everyone is to reach for that very apple. So soon nobody really wants the apple, that very apple, <laughs> and there's nothing new, special, or exciting about it, right? Yeah. So that's... I prefer to get on my tippy toes and use ladders to get high up on the tree and pick the apples hidden from immediate view. That's, that's, that's a great way of putting it. I love that analogy. and ease, Easily achieved, not worth the effort. I love that. And, you know, how did you fight? But, but at the same time, how did you fight through that chaos of all that that was going on around you? Um, I think that I, that, that I tend to thrive in chaos. Mm-hmm. So when things are moving too slow, even today, I tend to stir them up to induce velocity. I think that obviously this dates back. Um, you know, it goes back to those days in journalism when I was always on a deadline that needed beating. So I feel that, you know, again, to go back to the, the, the analogy with the, with the tree and the apple, I was never bothered with those scrapes and bruises from the lateral or the branches along the way, right? So mm-hmm. for me, business is just one aspect of who you are. So, you know, not having fear and, and you know, wanting to do something different and unique and believing in it, um, even at times when everything else around us was falling apart, um, I developed this internal kind of belief that whatever you feel the economy is like, and you manage to uh, find people around you who think positively about that economy, no matter how bad that economy actually can get, you can create a positive change. You can be a catalyst. So let's talk about scale for a second. I, I don't uh, I don't know if I have a sense that you're a planner. Did you have a strategic plan or did you just kind of put it together one piece at a time? Um, I'm actually more a planner than you would ever know because and that is because of my research background. Ah, that make that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. I'm yeah. actually an investigative journalist primarily mm-hmm. who ended up finding herself in the war. But um, I was trying to work work this from the back, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to envision what the business would need in order to be a successful enterprise in, say, 2027, which is 20 years down that road. We started with research first, and we created a platform back in 2007 that could efficiently support the work of 10,000 brokers, at least. Hmm. And in the office at that time, we had five people. Okay. So the backbone of that very platform 
Um, still powers up our business, but it's unrecognizable at this point from the user standpoint, obviously, because it's been, you know, with most businesses, obviously not all of our pilot projects were ideal, pun intended. <laughs> yeah. Some of them have been retired, replaced with more effective and more dynamic options, but we have added it and re-added it and we continue to do so in order to stay ahead of the curve of, you know, time and trend. So, um, you know, we're always trying to envision what's going to happen 10, 15, 20 years down the road. So today my work, uh, minus, you know, talking to you, obviously, is um, to try to understand what the Brooklyn and New York City markets are going to have um, in their, you know, bag for us in 2040. Two or it's it's kind of like Alexandria. I mean, I go back and I read your bio and background. You were a student of archaeology. Yes. It's almost like you're a reverse archaeologist right now. It's so interesting that somebody recently said that they were like, "Is there like such a thing as a future archaeologist?" Yeah, yeah. I think that that that's the case because it. Uh, I think at this point, given that I come from that I come from Eastern Europe, where we have that kind of sense of length of time and, and of time passing um, and history in general, um, you know, I can kind of put myself and our business, obviously, onto a timeline or a historic timeline and, and kind of unveil it in front of me um, and just have that reference point of now, yesterday, tomorrow, and be able to combine the history or the lessons from before with whatever is coming next mm. in order to get there properly. Awesome. Well, listen, I, we're running out of time, but I'm going to ask you one last question because you got 300 employees, but I want to ask you more uh, as your history as a working mother. What advice do you give your kids? Um, I tell my daughter, to she's six, so, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that, that, that this, <laughs> this will have to continue. It's a work in progress. But... Uh, I tell her to find and understand her passion. We mm. constantly talk about what it is that she likes and what she finds interesting. And then once she finds that passion, uh, my idea is that she should work hard at developing it, whatever it may be. Yeah. You know, also, I tell her to ask her working father for advice as well. <laughs> Good. That brings in a different perspective. So, so we're not so stupid as guys. That's good. I like to hear that. That's a good, good, good way to end. Hey, what a pleasure to have you. I, I wish you all the best as, as always. It's, it, I, I can't wait. To, I'm going to go have to, you and I are going to have to have dinner together at some point. We got to get together at dinner. I want to hear some more about your background and history. I'm, I'm just. Sure. I would love that. That would be lovely. Um, All right. Well, thank you. Thanks for being here as part of uh, our show right here on C-Suite Radio with All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Thank you for having me. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by Dunkin' Donuts. I got to tell you, after every show, I like to talk about what I learned. I enjoyed my conversations. I always get a great, different perspective. And I really like this saying that she said, Easily achieved, not worth the effort. Wow. Yeah, that's true. If it's not hard, if it's not hard, why do you want to do it? Because that makes you feel better about it, and it's the truth. If it was easy, everybody would do it. I've said this a million times. And the other one was overcoming fear. You just got to overcome fear. And here she was in a war, and she had to overcome fear and, and never really sensed that. And so what would you do? What are you going to do when the chips are down, 
I'm not saying you have to wait for war, but man, something happens in your business. Can you overcome your fear to get through it? That's a good question. Good learning. So think about that. I think you can. And I appreciate you overcoming your fear and picking up and listening to this show right here on All Business with Jeffrey Hazen on C-Suite Radio. Welcome to C-Suite Radio, a podcast network featuring today's top business experts and is part of the C-Suite Network, the world's most trusted network of C-Suite executives. Find this and other business podcasts on c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.